Welcome, Pete Myers. Hello, Michael. You've had an extraordinary career in work in environmental health uh, as the uh, uh, as the CEO and chief scientist now of environmental health sciences in Charlottesville, Virginia. You were also the co-author of a book many consider one of the Bibles of environmental health sciences, Our Stolen Future, with Theo Colburn and Diane Duvanowski, which came out in 1996, and which explores the threat posed by man-made chemical contaminants to human development and health. You've been a senior advisor to the United Nations Foundation, and from 1990 to 2002, you were director of the W. Alton Jones Foundation, a private foundation that supported efforts to protect the global environment and protect and to prevent nuclear war. Many of us know you best, those of us involved with environmental health, from your daily newsletter, Above the Fold, which summarizes uh, a very wide range of developments in environmental health from major media across the world and reaches uh, many thousands of people. I want to start by asking you a little bit about environmental health sciences and what has brought you at this point in your career to focus on uh, distributing uh, uh, mainstream media reports on environmental health sciences to, what to such a wide audience. What, is, what made you choose that as the focus of your work right now? Well, Michael... What I came to realize at the Jones Foundation, um, where we lived at the interface between science and policy and, and activism, um, was that in the, in, in, in the environmental health field, uh, and more broadly in, in the range of things we worked on there, uh, we needed to be able to help people understand uh, what the science was actually saying. And we couldn't do it by ourselves, by me going out and Theo going out and others one-on-one -on -one, uh, to make speeches or to talk with small groups. We had to figure out ways to um, use the existing resources of the media uh, to spread this information more broadly. And I had um, been quite... Uh, uh, interested in uh, what Phil Shabakov started, uh, and I know Phil's listening right now. Uh, in the mid, in the early '90s, Greenwire, um, which served a great role uh, in the era of fax communication, to gather to aggregate news from U.S. news sources and spread it around, particularly to other reporters and editors, and. and use that process to help drive more information into the press. Because as reporters and editors read what other people were covering, then they would, that would legitimize stories in their eyes. Um, Greenwire drifted off and began doing its own reporting and I think left a big niche open uh, for what we do now, uh, where we, we take that concept and supercharge it with uh, web tools. So really what we're trying to do is to help people understand that there is a revolution underway in environmental health sciences and use the outreach uh, of the existing uh, media 
uh, structures to make that possible to and make it possible to reach a lot of people. How many people do you reach uh, on a monthly basis through Above the Fold? Well, Above the Fold, uh, actually, our main audience there are working reporters, and we have several hundred who subscribe to it, and several thousand people who subscribe to the newsletter, all told. But our biggest uh, outreach is actually not through Above the Fold. It's through the news feeds that we distribute freely from the website. We have about 150 other websites using what are called RSS feeds from us, real simple syndication. Um, and those 100, our estimates are that with the viewership of those sites, those 150 plus now, we're putting headlines in front of over 2 million people a month. And what are the key points that you uh, want people to understand about the environmental health sciences revolution that you described that you and Theo Colburn did so much to inaugurate with your book, Our Stolen Future. If you were to just capsulate three or four critical points that you think are the, the real headlines of this uh, revolution, what are they? Well, the, the overarching headline, the, the really big one, is that there are some extraordinary opportunities to prevent major diseases today that we're not taking advantage of because our, the health standards that we, we depend upon today to protect our health are based on science that's now out of date. Um, we've learned through our experience with lead and with some of the persisting organic pollutants that once, we, once this country makes a decision to get a contaminant out of the way, we can do a really good job. Um, and when you begin to look at the range of today's diseases that are running uh, at, at epidemic, epidemic scale, and then you also look at the science that's showing plausible, not certain, but plausible links between those diseases and um, a, a range of environmental contaminants, you realize there are some amazing opportunities to prevent disease. And let me, I, I, I think of when I'm talking about this, I think of Amory Lovins and what he did. Amory wrote that amazing that, that article in 1976 in Foreign Affairs called Changing Course. And he proposed something very simple. He said the cheapest source of new energy is through conservation. The energy experts of the day laughed at him. They, they said, drill. Drill here. Drill there. More, we need more oil we don't need to conserve. Well, in the last 30 years, we've learned Amory was fundamentally correct in what he said. And I think we're at a similar stage in the environmental health sciences where that science is telling us by reducing the burden of the chemical burden to which we're currently exposed, we can move upstream to prevention and not only lower the disease burden, but also do a much more efficient job economically uh, at, uh, in, in healthcare costs. How realistic is that? Aren't there something like 80,000 chemicals in use? It seems to me that uh, conservation, conserving energy, uh, while enormously complex, as we understand, may be in some senses easier than sorting through the 80,000 chemicals that are in widespread use, trying to figure out which ones are harmful and which ones are not, and then developing safe alternatives. Isn't that a daunting task even for 
a country that sometimes can really make a difference when it tries? It is a daunting task, but you know, I doubt that all 80,000 are going to prove to be crucially involved in this. I think that there's going to be a much smaller number that are clearly involved in the etiology of a number of the bigger diseases, and um, we can start there. I think we just have to start. How do we discover which chemicals are really critically involved? Are there technologies that would enable us to uh, screen these chemicals at reasonable cost and figure out which ones we should be most concerned We already with. have enough information on some to start acting. Uh, the, the poster child of this uh, is a compound used to make polycarbonate plastic, used to make uh, rosins that line uh, over 50% of today's food cans sold in U.S. supermarkets. Um, this compound called bisphenol A uh, changes the behavior of over 200 genes. That's about uh, 1% of the human genome. Uh, Serious replicated lab studies with animals um, tell us that it's implicated in um, diabetes, uh, in prostate cancer, in breast cancer, um, in obesity, in uh, in, uh, early early onset senility. Um, It's really quite a remarkable compound. Um, Astounding that we would have let it be still used today. But I'll start there. And um, you, you mentioned that bisphenol A changes the uh, uh, behavior of a whole set of uh, human genes. It sounds as if you're talking about a approach to understanding human health that doesn't counterpose genes against the environment, but rather that uh, these chemicals are interacting with our genetic heritage in terms of changing, what, the expression of genes? That's a really important point to make, Michael. Most of us um, are under the impression that, uh, you know, we, we get our genes from, a parent, from our parents, and that's the end of the story. You get the good gene, you're in great shape. You get the bad gene, you got problems. Um, it's not that simple. Uh, in fact, uh, Genes are being turned on and off throughout our lives, trillions of times a second, literally making proteins. And uh, we need to have those proteins available to us um, to live healthy lives. And if if a contaminant like bisphenol A or the phthalates or any number of uh, compounds that interfere with gene expression, simply put, the the turning on and off of of genes, um, if we don't have those proteins at the right time, uh, we're in trouble. Uh, we can either, if it's, if it's turned on at an inappropriate moment, there are problems, or if it's turned off when we need it, there's a problem. So some of these uh, chemicals or contaminants not only change the expression of genes during our lifetime, but apparently it's possible uh, that they change it uh, for our children and our children's children as well. Is that correct? Well, there's an interesting body of literature that's uh, just starting to emerge that has discovered that if exposure takes place in a key time, very early after fertilization of the egg, um, as it's traveling down before implantation, that um, if exposure takes place then, under 
at least ex- exposure with two endocrine-disrupting compounds, uh, vinclozolin, a fungicide, and methoxychlor, uh, a pesticide, that that exposure will alter the switches that control whether or not a gene is expressed. Um, and they, in three publications now, in the small literature and uh, the exposure used, exposures used in experiments were quite high compared to what people are exposed to. Um, that the, the, the exposure in, in a rat, great grandmother rat, has effects all the way down to great grandson. Um, not a mutation, it's a change in the presence or absence of what are called methyl groups, which, in essence, uh, influence whether or not a gene can be turned on or off when you need it. So that's pretty troubling. Uh, we don't know if it works at uh, background levels. We, uh, the scientists who've done this work, uh, led by Michael Skinner, uh, Washington State University, um, have not uh, looked to see whether or not low doses can cause the same thing. So we, we just don't know. But take the case of diethyl Am I saying it right? Diethyl silvestrol. Diethyl silvestrol. As you know, I'm a DES son. My mother took... Uh, DES, which was a, a, a pharmaceutical that many women took to prevent uh, spontaneous abortions and hold on to their pregnancies. And uh, she took it. If I'd been a girl, I would have had a very high risk of a reproductive uh, cancer. My memory is that you have, uh, uh, you have published in Above the Fold a reference to studies uh, demonstrating that DES in experimental animals can have effects that go through several generations as well. Um, there, there are studies with mice uh, showing a third-generation effect. Now, the methoxychlorvinclozolin work I just mentioned was four generations, um, and there's, there's a key difference, actually five generations, from great-grandmother to great-grandmother. Um, there's a key difference uh, in that what we, what we don't know about the DES um, is what you have to bear in mind is that when a, a female mammal, uh, either a, a you know person or a mouse or a rat, is exposed in the womb, um, actually her eggs are also being exposed. So the granddaughters are being exposed. The the, the eggs that become a granddaughter are being exposed when the grandmother is, is being exposed to DES. So there, the effect could be, one possible mechanism, is the effect could be the direct exposure of the eggs at a key time in development. I see. Whereas with the, with the experiment I mentioned earlier, we know that the, you know, the egg, uh, it, it's too many generations for there to have been direct exposure. Um, what we, know, we know what's happening, at least at one level, or Skinner and his colleagues um, are, are pretty sure that the uh, exposure takes place at a time in development when, actually they know this, when all the, the methyl groups, the methylation patterns, have been lifted off the DNA. And then they normally are lifted off at that time in development. And then they're reestablished in a hopefully faithfully to the way they were before it was lifted off uh, 24, 36 hours later. The exposure has to take place during that window when they've, when they've been lifted off. And if that happens, then the reestablishment is not faithful to what it had been. 
that makes sense? It does. So some people might say, listening to you, Lamarck lives, that the uh, inheritance of acquired characteristics is exactly what you're talking well, about. Well, some of the editorials that accompanied um, the initial publication by uh, Skinner, Ed- An- Anway was the senior author, some of the, publica- the editorials that accompanied that or followed it uh, mentioned that fact. Um, this is, it, at one level, uh, remarkably similar to what uh, a, a molecular genetic version of Lamarck might have anticipated. Now, if Lamarck lives, some people would say about endocrine disruptors that Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, also lives, that you're talking about impacts on fetal development at parts per billion or parts per trillion, far, far below anything that toxicology ever dreamed might be true. Uh, what is your uh, reading of, um, of where, uh, where those observations are taking us? They're taking us to the fact that um, if you're if you're messing around with chemicals that interfere with hormone signaling, chemicals that are as powerful as bisphenol A, which has been shown to, to cause profound changes in cell physiology down to 0.23 parts per trillion, um, you can have very important effects at very low levels. You still need molecules around, uh, and I think some of the calculations that um, people have done trying to ascertain the, the, the likelihood of, of the, at least the far-out versions of homeopathy have concluded that there's unlikely to be any molecules. Um, but in this case, what you have to think about, you think about a part per billion. Okay, what is a part per billion? Um, let's see. A part per billion, imagine a drop of water. Okay. A drop of water with one part per billion in it of bisphenol A. Doesn't sound like very much. Uh, one part per billion, uh, people at Environmental Working Group figured out that one part per billion would be like one pancake in a stack of pancakes 4,000 miles high. Mm. So it sounds like a really small amount. And it is, except when you flip it on its head and ask, well, okay, so at one part per billion, how many molecules of bisphenol A would be in that one drop. One part per billion, one drop, 132 billion molecules of bisphenol A. And that's because all of you, I'm sure, are remembering Avogadro's number, which we learned in, you know, 10th or 11th grade chemistry, that tells us that, uh, that actually there are a lot of molecules in the world, 6.23 times the 23rd, um, and you work that through the calculations, and that's how you come up with 132 billion molecules in one drop. And then the other thing you have to think about, so you've got 132 billion of those bisphenol A molecules in one drop. Then you need to know that at least in some of the cell signaling mechanisms that uh, compounds like bisphenol A affect, there are magnifying uh, processes that mean that one molecule can trigger many uh, changes in gene expression, many. And so it, it turns out that a part per billion at the molecular level can be quite meaningful. Don't we also know that uh, from some of the pharmaceuticals, the relevant doses that they aim at uh, 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 delivering to the human body? Yeah, actually, that's, that's an interesting observation. Um, I'll turn again to 
work done by the Environmental Working Group. Um, their website is ewg.org, by the way. Um, they have calculated, or actually they didn't calculate, they, they did a review of the target dose that physicians intend to achieve uh, in human serum by delivering a, the, the, a prescription. Um, one of my favorite examples from that survey was the dose of Cialis um, that is supposed to, that is effective. And it's Cialis being Cialis is a drug uh, given for erectile dysfunction. Um, so Cialis has a noticeable effect. Uh, the target dose is 30 parts per billion. At 30 parts per billion, if you read the warning on the label, um, you can go to their website and see this. If you Google Cialis, you'll find a lot of information, and one of them will be the website of the manufacturer. Um, at 30 parts per billion, men are warned, well, that some of them may begin to uh, lose vision. It can cause loss of vision in both eyes in some men. It can call, cause preapsis, which is a, an erection that lasts for four-plus days, at which point you're supposed to go see a doctor. So there, there, we know that drugs can be, certain drugs, depending upon their molecular configuration, just like certain chemicals, depending upon their molecular configuration, can cause profound effects. Now, you mentioned the different effects that at 30 parts per billion, Cialis can have on different men. Is that a consequence of something that I'm just trying to understand called genetic polymorphisms, which apparently means that different people absorb and, and use different chemicals in very different ways, or is it something else? No, that, that's exact, that, most likely that's it. Um, there can also be differences that are affected by or caused by dietary differences or stress or a, lo a lot of different things, it turns out. So um, tell us what genetic polymorphisms refers to. What's that about? Well, um, you're, you, know, you, you think of a gene as a collection of DNA molecules strung out, and uh, they're composed of the basic building blocks of DNA, and sometimes there are errors made in which of those basic building blocks are included in the, in the DNA molecule that's coding for the, the gene. And uh, those different people have different errors, and some of them have it right. They don't have errors, and some have it. And it's the presence or absence of those errors that uh, create genetic polymorphisms. But is it errors or simply diversity? In well, some cases? Uh, some cases it is oh, absolutely simply diversity, and they're classic examples in, in basic biology that uh, explore the, the value of different polymorphisms. And you, you are right. Um, one of the sources of differential sensitivity of people to contaminants deals with genetic polymorphisms in the genes that we have for detoxifying chemicals. So there can be enormous differences, apparently, between people's sensitivity to different chemicals depending on the, their, their diversity, in effect. Yes. Of, um, recently, I'm, I'm blanking on the author, um, but recently, it might have been Brenda Ashkenazi at uh, Berkeley. Um, a study came out of Berkeley um, looking at, genetic poly, at the differential susceptibility to organophosphate pesticides in kids. And they found as much as a 47-fold difference. Which would explain why uh, some people exposed to something 
get really sick, and other people tolerate it reasonably well. It certainly is one of the factors. So we've talked about the uh, low, low doses at which these chemicals can function. Incidentally, we often refer to them as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, but apparently the endocrine system is far from the only system that they can alter. And I wonder why we don't call them signal-disrupting chemicals across a, a wide range of different uh, organ systems. Some people have suggested that that would be entirely appropriate. I, I wouldn't have any uh, argument with it. Um, Theo and I, when we first started uh, looking into this, were completely focused on factors affecting hormones, and so it was natural to call it endocrine disruption. Um, but at the same time, as more and more work was done, we discovered that... Uh, it, not we, uh, scientists, other scientists discovered that if you, basically if you look hard at a signaling system, you're likely to find something disrupting it. And in addition to the endocrine system, what are the other major systems that get disrupted uh, by these contaminants? Well, I, I would say the, the one that is most um, underappreciated is the immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, it, of course, it also can be affected by, uh, it, it is also under the control of hormones, um, but the, the immune system effects are ones that um, have been um, really emerging of late because of the remarkable sensitivity of some of the endpoints that people are studying uh, with immune system uh, signaling. Uh, for example, quite recently, a study came out uh, looking at what are called mast cells in mice and, and people and doing experiments in, um, in, in, in cell culture with uh, human and mouse mast cells uh, and looking at the effect uh, of several different contaminants, uh, a, um, a couple persistent pollutants like DDE and um, some PCBs, as well as less persistent and non-persistent things like um, uh, nonachlor. And, oh, actually, that is persistent. Oh, there was one not. I don't remember the non-persistent one right now. But in, in any event, what they, what they found was that this process, and this is a, this is a, a key cell in the immune system that uh, release, when, it's, when it finds an allergen, it, it goes through a process called degranulation, where um, it releases uh, cytokines and histamines, which provoke the allergic reaction, provoke the inflammation. turns out that at literally one-tenth of a part per billion of several of these compounds, this, um, this degranulation process is, uh, is stimulated. It's exaggerated um, so that when the... the encounters the allergen, it releases more than it should have. Um, actually, it's quite interesting also because at, while at one-tenth of a part per billion, the, the, the maximum response was provoked, at uh, 10 parts per billion, so 100 times higher, uh, there was no, no apparent reaction, um, no difference between the experimental group and the control group. This is one of these class now turning out to be very interesting and much more widespread than initially appreciated. These curves, that, those response curves that are called um, non-monotonic dose response curves, 
where an intermediate level provokes a stronger result than a high level. And that's one of the other critical points, as I understand, that you bring out, uh, that uh, the assumption that the dose makes the poison, which is central to traditional toxicology and central to our systems of regulating chemicals, is absolutely unfounded on a scientific basis uh, as one explores the effects of these chemicals. Well, it's not unfounded. It's that there are exceptions. There are big exceptions, and it's pretty clear that one of the areas where there are exceptions is in hormones, excuse me, contaminants behave like hormones. Endocrinologists have known for a long time that what happens at one dose, at a high dose, may be very different than what happens at a low dose and vice versa. Um, So as endocrinologists have played around with the toxicology of endocrine-disrupting compounds, they've constructed their experiments in ways that allow them to look for these inverted U or U-shaped dose response curves. Not surprising. That's the way the hormones work. Um, So it's not surprising that a contaminant that acts like a hormone would have a non-monotonic dose response curve. Uh, The problem is that our health standards are based upon science that assumes that doesn't happen. There's some really dramatic examples of it happening, though. Um, I would uh, encourage anyone who has access to a computer to go look at Environmental Health News. Today, the top story in our central column is it about is about in this, a review we did of this whole phenomenon, and there's a picture there of two mice from Risa Newbold's laboratory at NIEHS. Um, you'll, if you're there, you'll see that one of the mal- mice is normal, that's the control mouse, and the other one's grotesquely obese. That grotesquely obese mouse was exposed to diethylstilbestrol in the womb at approximately one part per billion delivered to the mother. Um, Risa's earlier work has shown that if you deliver 100 parts per billion, the experimental animal is, weighs less than the control animal. So at, high parts, at 100 parts per billion, it's weight loss. At one part per billion, it's grotesque obesity. Um, the standard tests we depend upon today uh, that have been used to establish all health standards regulating chemicals anywhere in the world depend upon their ability to predict low-dose effects from high doses. And yet that one picture makes it clear that that's not a safe assumption. Right. Um, Going back for a moment to your point about how some of these uh, chemicals affect uh, endocrine system and others affect immune system, to what degree are these, when we talk about the endocrine system and the immune system, aren't those sort of artifacts of the way we divide up what is in fact a, a single comprehensive system? And when I spent many years looking at the field of integrative medicine, as, as I continue to, uh, we, we looked very carefully at what was then called psychoneuroimmunology, which was actually shorthand for biopsychosocial neuroimmunology. And the bottom line, Bob Ader and many other scientists in that field, was that uh, these distinctions we make between the immune system and the neurological system uh, and psychological systems uh, really, to some extent, are artifacts of our ways of dividing the world. Um, 
so that we're really dealing with, uh, as I understand, please correct us if I'm wrong, with a system that is so integrated that these distinctions that we make um, have to be taken with with a, a large grain of salt in terms of uh, viewing them as truly distinct systems. Well, there's all sorts of crosstalk between these different systems, but they do do different things, and it helps us to understand them if we can if we can take them apart mm-hmm. and look at how they behave separately, and then figure out how they can be put back together. Mm-hmm. Unquestionably, we miss effects by only looking at one area separately from another because of the crosstalk. Um, but if we began, if our only choice was to look at the, the whole system together, it would be very difficult to make scientific progress. Right. We just have to acknowledge that um, at some point we've got to pull it together. Before the call, I was making a list of some of the areas that we think about in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, some of the different diseases that we've been exploring. So my list read cancer, asthma, infertility, learning disabilities, birth defects, allergies and chemical sensitivities, autoimmune diseases, obesity, uh, Parkinson's uh, and Alzheimer's, uh, diabetes. Um, We could undoubtedly extend the list. Um, but when you think about what we know or uh, increasingly suspect about the role of contaminants in these many epidemics of our time, how significant is that role really? Are we overestimating it because some of us have tracked uh, chemical contaminants as a concern? Are we privileging chemical contaminants above other uh, vectors of concern, or is the evidence strong enough now to say that chemical contaminants uh, really uh, deserves a, uh, a careful look, uh, given the exist- existing evidence? I think the evidence is overwhelming that chemical contaminants deserve a critical look, overwhelming. If anything, it's been underprivileged over the last 30 years compared to other factors. But those other factors are important. And when we talk, for example, about obesity and this emerging science that's telling us, indicating, showing clearly in animals, and that one, photo, that one photograph is by no means the only datum that people can point to now. Um, when, we, when we talk about the, the role of contamination and altering weight homeostasis, the regulation of weight, um, no one who works in this field that I know of would say it's the only factor, or probably wouldn't even say it's a major factor, but it is potentially a place where we can intervene practically and prevent some portion of that disease that's caused by exposures. It won't be, it'll never be 100%. It might only be 10%, but if we could identify 10% of an epidemic and figure out how to prevent that portion effectively, that's a pretty big deal. And the way that, and specifically, the way that I think about the, the possible role of contamination and uh, altering weight homeostasis, the way, regulation of weight, is that you know, if, if we lived in a world um, in which, uh, through, during development, um, the set point for weight 
wasn't disturbed by some type of exposure. If we lived in a world in which that was all fine, then we could probably do a much better job at controlling our weight in a world that has, that's got full of free calories as we live today. Or if we lived, if, if there weren't excess calories easily available to us and our weight me- control mechanisms uh, were screwed up, um, we, we probably wouldn't have the epidemic that we have today. It's the combination of the two of them where the factors that normal feedback loops that go about controlling your weight, something is, in some people is likely to be messed up there and then confronted with easy access to lots of calories, uh, they've got a problem. None of this happens in isolation. Yes. When, when you look at the, the list of diseases uh, that the Collaborative on Health and the Environment is concerned with, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, that list, cancer, asthma, infertility, and, and the rest, what are the uh, conditions that stand out for you as the conditions in which, in a broad sense, the evidence is strongest? Well, um, there are a range of things, and the, the, the strength of the evidence varies significantly. It varies from disease to disease, and it varies from chemical to chemical. But as you know, uh, the collaborative um, pulled together a database, Ted Shetler um, and colleagues uh, pulled together a database about two years ago, is it now, mm-hmm. where they um, they first did, based on um, uh, peer-reviewed studies, looking, at, looking carefully across the range of human health endpoints, uh, they identified roughly 200 diseases where there was good to excellent evidence. Uh, that contamination was contributing to some portion of those uh, health endpoints. And they included a, a wide range of cancers. They included infertility. They included uh, developmental disorders. Um, it, it's pretty strong. And then you add to that this emerging science that I've been talking about, where the human epidemiology is, is re- for the most part, is relatively weak, um, just because people haven't had a chance to integrate the new insights of this biology into epidemiological studies, with a few exceptions. Uh, then you start looking at things where you know, it's, it's animal studies make it pretty clear that um, uh, think, um, breast cancer is likely to have, highly likely, have a strong contribution by exposures, particularly during development, um, particularly during times of de- uh, sensitive times of development. Uh, prostate cancer. Uh, the infertility literature is really interesting. Uh, and as, I, in fact, I'm sure there are people on the call right now who participated in um, a fertility summit organized by Che, by Allie Carlson, and Linda Judice, and Shauna Swan, and others, where compelling evidence was introduced that some portion of the human burden of infertility is likely to be caused by uh, certain types of contaminants, clearly at high levels. But now this new science is telling us that exposure in the womb to relatively low levels, levels which people used to think were irrelevant in background, can be causing developmental errors leading to uh, fertility challenges uh, in adulthood. I'd like to turn now to what we can do about this. Um, 
one of the areas in which I think you've been really prescient was identifying green chemistry as a very promising way to move from very toxic chemicals to far less toxic compounds. Could you say a word about what green chemistry is and what you see the promise? Well, first I should preface this by saying I am not a green chemist. I'm not a chemist. Um, My organic chemistry professor would be laughing at this moment if you were hearing me talk about chemistry. Um, But with that having been said, uh, my interest in this stems from two events. One of them took place uh, in the uh, about 1997, when I was Theo and I and Diane had just published our Stolen Future, and I was going around lecturing us, or Theo and Diane, and we got to uh, expect at our lectures that there would be some aggressive people in the audience who were challenging us with uh, their version of the science, Um, and they would be at every meeting. They would be distributing uh, leaflets. Uh, they would be contacting reporters in the towns where we were going. And so I went to Camden, New Jersey, to the Society of Plastics Engineers for a session um, in the belly of the beast, so to speak, because I was raising some questions about plastics that a lot of uh, plastics engineers didn't like. And so the, the, this was in Camden. Um, it was a dark and stormy night. And... Uh, the, the, as usual, as I expected, it was a mixture of scientifically interesting uh, questions and then overtly hostile ones. And then it was over, and everyone left, except for two big guys in the back of the room. Now, I grew up not in Camden, but close enough to know that um, in the 60s and 70s, that was where people wound up with cement overshoes um, <laughs> because of concentration right. of mob activities around right. there. At least that's what I thought. Anyway, so there are these two big guys in the back of the room. It's a dark and stormy night, and I am uh, watching them, and, and everyone else is left, and they start coming towards me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? And they come up, and they say, we like what you're doing. Excuse me? No, we like what you're doing because you're making certain commodity plastics unsellable in the market, and we've got the replacements, and we're going to make a lot of money. And I, you know, I, I went to school at Berkeley and at Reed College, and thinking about things that way just didn't make sense to me initially. Then I realized that um, that that that, w- that is actually what we were doing, and that part of the solution to this lay in developing the materials that could provide us the services of plastic that can hold water, but that doesn't leach a compound that binds with the estrogen receptor. And, and so, th- so that was very intriguing. I didn't know where to go with it. And then about three years ago, I started to uh, interact with um, people like Paul Anastas, uh, then from the Green Chemistry Institute and now at Yale University, and Terry Collins, who's at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and John Warner, who's at University of Massachusetts Lowell. And these people were thinking about how to make those materials, how to make molecules that are inherently safe. Responding to the sorts of signals that, you know, are toxicological signals that are produced by scientists like Fred von Saul and Lou Gillette and, and others, but then take that and look at the molecule and ask, how can we do this in a safe way? How can we change the, 
the molecular structure in a way that it can't bind with the estrogen receptor. It's been a fascinating journey. journey. I, the, the, um, which really started to move more rapidly at a meeting um, at Darden School of Business organized by uh, Andrea Larson and Karen O'Brien, um, where they, they brought together a range of people. I was there talking toxic molecules. And John Warner and, and Terry Collins and Paul Anastas, the leaders in green, green chemistry, were there listening to what I had to say and saying, well, why don't we do it this way? And then there were some people there who actually make the plastics out of the molecules that John and, and Terry and, and Paul create. And then there were some people who make um, products out of those plastics. And finally, there was a representative from Kaiser Permanente. They're thinking about changing their buying standards, so they buy products made out of materials fashioned from the plastics made out of molecules that avoid the problems I talk about. It was an amazing uh, meeting, and it really made me, it, it opened up a whole new world for me, and it, it made me think that you know, all this time we've been talking about problems. We've got to start showing there are practical, realistic solutions. Now, in, that, in that description, you're, you're talking about ways that... Uh, from your meeting on a dark and stormy night in New Jersey to uh, uh, major healthcare systems thinking about uh, purchasing uh, green uh, green chemical materials, you're talking about how the market can drive the shift toward green chemistry. Precisely. Now, green chemistry needs a lot of help. The way that John Warner puts it, he says, "Think of a you know you know one of those if if, if you if you're a mechanic and you work on a car." You've got a toolkit that may be, you know, one of those shelves, toolkits on rollers that has 17 drawers in it, and a standard chemist can open any one of those drawers and has, you know, countless tools to choose from. If, if you imagine the green chemistry counterpart to that, most of the drawers are still empty. Uh, some of them are starting to be populated. You know, they are making real progress, but I, I think one of the most important things we can do right now is figure out how to get more resources into the field of green chemistry so that we have the replacement so that when we have identified something as dangerous, not only can we offer an alternative uh, to the consumer, but we can argue in front of people making public health decisions that that, that molecule isn't necessary because there's a replacement. So that is a, a market approach to moving from toxic chemicals to green chemicals. What about a regulatory approach? Right now in Washington, D.C., something called the Kids Safe Chemical Act is uh, under consideration. And meanwhile, in states across the country, uh, another approach is uh, being taken uh, to uh, phasing out chemicals. Uh, some people uh, take uh, what's called a risk assessment approach. Others uh, don't want chemicals that are inherently toxic uh, made or distributed at all regardless of uh, uh, exposure issues. From your point of view, with a lot of experience, how do you regard these different experiments and how to regulate uh, chemicals? We know that Environmental Defense recently published a very interesting study of chemical regulation in Europe, Canada, and the United States. What would be your preferred approach uh, to uh, a new set of 
uh, regulatory systems for reducing exposure to harmful chemicals? Well, um, I, I, I first of all, with respect to the argument about the failures of risk assessment, I'm, I'm right there. Uh, risk assessment, as it has been practiced, has failed us. Uh, it's, it's based on science that's still in, in the Jurassic. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't make it do a good job. In fact, uh, I think that risk assessment is a process can, that can be dramatically improved and we can make it work for us. Um, the Kids Safe Chemical Act takes a very interesting approach to focus attention on, the, um, on what's in people and particularly what's in kids uh, based on biomonitoring. And then um, sets up standards of safety that have to be met uh, with data provided by the manufacturer, which is another problem. Um, but it, I think it, it is one of the most interesting proposals around right now. Um, I don't think it will solve all problems. Um, as it's currently proposed, it, uh, it doesn't really address sufficiently well the, the, the low-dose phenomenon. I, and my understanding is that people are working literally this week to try and figure out how to do that better. But it also, I'm really troubled by uh, its dependence on data from manufacturers of the compound. We have learned with lead, we've learned with tobacco, we've learned with soft drinks, we've learned with a variety of pharmaceuticals, we've learned with atrazine through Tyrone Hayes' work, and we've learned uh, from Fred Bumsall and Wade Welshans that uh, there are biases, strong biases, in um, research provided by manufacturers. Um, and so in, until we can fix, until we figure out how to work with that, um, I think we're still going to have problems. And what about the state-based approach that uh, is being explored in different states across the country? Well, um, what those have, you, you take the, um, the one that was just passed in, in Washington, banning of uh, EBDE, uh, DECA, a polybrominated diphenyl ether, which is used in, um, as a flame retardant in a variety of uh, common consumer materials. Um, what they've done is, is they have uh, managed to get the state legislature, and it's a great victory, managed to get the state legislature to um, ban the use in Washington of, of that compound. Um, but we don't know anything about the replacements, at least I don't, and perhaps someone on the call can correct me later. Um, I, I, I don't think that, that, the, that the approach that's being advocated for, which basically says uh, cleaner substitutes, um, is going to be scalable to a national toxicology program. I don't think it's going to work. How do you compare the at the international level the direction being taken in Canada, in Europe, and these efforts in the United States? Uh, you may have read the Environmental Defense Report on this. What are the relative strengths and weaknesses of these three broad approaches? Well, the, the Canadian approach is, to me right now is the most interesting. Um, what they it, it's based on a law that was passed 
10 years ago, eight years ago, um, in Canada that required them to uh, begin an assessment program looking through the uh, high-volume chemicals that are used in Canada and to establish a set of priorities where um, they would put, be put through a pretty stringent review at the end, narrowing down to from first from 27,000, I think was the number in the, in the initial bag of things, to look, narrowing it down to first to 400, and then they discovered that the 400, 200 were no longer relevant because they weren't being used. So they focused on those 200, and uh, now uh, have narrowed that group to a high-priority list, of which bisphenol A is, I believe, going to be the uh, the number one uh, approach, uh, number one, or the first one that's, that's studied. And I think that's going to be announced next week. Um, they're, based on what I'm hearing now, they have the best chance of doing something significant about bisphenol A of any of the uh, jurisdictions in which it is now being considered. But their approach is fundamentally similar to the U.S. In terms of the intellectual construct, it is a risk assessment approach. And what about the European approach? The European, you know, there's the early version and then there's the late version. The early version is a 1997 proposal from Sweden, from the Swedish Chemical Protectorate. Uh, I think that's the right name. Where there were basically they they said um, that we're going to identify classes of compounds, and we're going to instead of going through a one by one uh, assessment, we're going to try and and group things into classes, and we're going to decides which, which ones we want to get out and uh, then give industry a reasonable time, not, not decades, but 10 years or 12 years, something like that, uh, in which to develop a substitute, so we, uh, a, a strong target. Um, and, we're, if, and so, for example, they said, if it's persistent and bioaccumulative, we know enough, we have enough history with persistent bioaccumulative compounds that sooner or later... Some toxicologist in Uppsala or you know, Madison, Wisconsin, someone's gonna, someone is going to discover a problem. So persistent and bioaccumulative, it's out um, over a uh, reasonably timed phase-out period. But that was, the, um, that was an effort by Sweden to develop uh, and a what they were referring to as a sustainable uh, chemical industry in Sweden. That, was, that concept was then taken to Europe, and um, it, it slowly evolved into uh, the proposal known as REACH, and I can never remember, remember the acronym, but, or the words that make up the acronym for REACH. Um, but where, in essence, um, chemicals... Oh, in high volume, um, were to be assessed. A chemical in high volume, uh, manufacturers wishing to use chemicals at high volume in Europe, initially it was a much broader array of them, then it was narrowed to high volume chemicals, uh, were required to provide vastly greater amounts of data than has currently been required. So, um, it has a precautionary air to it, but again, it depends upon data on the risks and the hazards of the chemicals. I'd like to step back now from what to do.
do about chemicals to the broader range of issues that you cover in environmental health sciences from climate to electromagnetic fields, radiation, genetically modified organisms, nanotech, the nitrogen cycle. You really span and have thought about an extraordinarily wide range of threats to human health and the environment. If you were making a list of what, in your view, are the vectors of most concern, I imagine that climate and uh, chemical contaminants would be on that list. What are the other uh, vectors that are uh, of greatest concern to you uh, as you look around at uh, the many different kinds of threats that we face to human health and the environment? Well, at the top of the list, I'd put climate. And right. second, I'd put climate. And third, I'd put climate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to make sure our brains are healthy enough to be able to think about climate, so chemicals have to be in there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think it's worth pointing out um, admitted climate has gotten a huge amount of press over the last six months. But one of the issues which everyone should be thinking about with respect to climate is the fact that um, mountainous areas that depend upon glacial water or drinking water for people are facing possibly no more than a 15-year time horizon before large numbers of people uh, tens if not hundreds of millions of people run out of drinking water. One of the clearest examples of this is what's happening in Peru and Chile and Bolivia, where uh, tens of millions of people depend upon glacial water for drinking and for uh, for agriculture. Uh, And those glaciers are on the way to being gone. Um, Within 15 years, this could result in human migrations at a scale we've never experienced before, ever. Um, as unless, unless there is, are steps taken beginning soon to either develop large-scale desalination or figure out how to use uh, some of the Andean uh, aquifers that are present and haven't been tapped yet. But the infrastructure necessary to use either of those solutions is uh, a long time in coming. So we face some very big, just just this one example, some very big climate problems in the near future. With respect to other things, um, the, the thing I think about first, as you ask that, is, is uh, pandemic, uh, pandemics like bird flu. 170 people now have died around the world from bird flu. Um, uh, it's, uh, or no, that was in Indonesia alone, I believe. Um, it's not yet easily spreading from person to person, um, but it isn't going to. You know, it could happen tomorrow. And our public health infrastructure is not not uh, prepared, uh, even remotely, to deal with the scale of illness that will be generated by um, a worldwide epidemic of bird flu. So that's that's got to be. A, a very big one. Pete, you travel tirelessly around the world. Those of us who know you uh, know that you're almost always just getting off a plane with too too little sleep, up every morning at 3 or 4 a.m. to put out above the fold. Uh, what drives you to make this kind of complete
complete commitment of your life to this work? What is the core underlying uh, purpose or, or principle that, that drives you to do what you do? Um, I see so much opportunity to do things better. Um, and, and, and we're just not acting on it. Uh, it's so f- compelling to me to see uh, what we can do uh, for people and for other inhabitants on the earth, and yet we're not doing it yet. So um, ought to be enough to get all of us working on it. Thank you for this conversation, Pete. You're welcome, Michael. Operator, would you open the lines now for us, please? Yes, sir. Welcome, everybody. Let's have some questions and comments. Did anyone stay? Well, we'll find out. (laughs) Michael, this is Phil. Hi, Phil. I have been thinking about, in terms of Che, whether or not we shouldn't think about having a focused uh, presence in Washington, D.C., and Sacramento. Uh, I think it was the New York Times today said that California's agenda is going to become the national agenda in part because of the primary, the early primary that's going to be held in California. And uh, I don't like to talk about lobbying, and of course we do have a lot of people who are back and forth and in and out, And but I'm wondering if there's some... If that idea at least might be discussed and see where we would go with it. Great question. That's Phil Lee, our founder and uh, chair. Um, Pete, any comments on that? Um, I mean, by the way, Pete, I, I, I love your, you know, that thing I get every day. <laughs> it's just... Thank you, Phil. I, I send one especially to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess... Uh, I, I would not. I, I think there should be a Che presence in every state capital. Um, Probably more important, yeah. But I do think that uh, if you have to choose, um, California clearly is one of the highest priorities for the very reason that, that you mentioned, Phil. Um, California policy doesn't always, but has driven uh, U.S. policy. On more than one occasion. Um, at the same time, I would argue strongly that Che's role is not to lobby. Um, no, absolutely. Uh, there are lots of great organizations that do that, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can distribute science, which is what we do, and also uh, bring together uh, patient advocates, health practitioners, and so on. But I also want to add that Many of our partners are doing that already using the science resources of Chase. So I think wherever possible, we'd hope that Chase partners would be uh, playing that key role um, since we really exist to serve the partnership in that way. But it's a great question, Phil. Thank you very much. Other comments and questions? It's Barbara McKelgan from Toronto. Yes. I was interested that you mentioned the uh, the assessment of bisphenol A by Health Canada, which will come out fairly soon. Um, I'm concerned that um, the low-dose effects and the endocrine disruptor effects uh, data won't be adequately explored <laughs> uh, 
I don't know why. Uh, it may be there, and it may not be there. But I, I find that there's a reluctance to accept those data, and it's really, really unfortunate. I guess because, in part, it's because industry is coming forward with their own studies, which are different, have a different result. Um, but uh, what can we do? I mean, there will be a comment period, I suppose. Uh, there usually is after these assessments are, are completed. And, um, you know, is there any special way we can approach this if it isn't adequately uh, involved in the assessment? Uh, well, I don't know enough about the decision-making process in Canada to comment on how to, to help that system make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what we do see, unfortunately, is that people trained uh, in traditional toxicology have a hard time accepting uh, endocrinological principles. Um, and so uh, I- until that happens, um, we're always going to be uh, fighting um, over some pretty basic science. And, you know, the irony is that, you know, this is something actually physicians understand. Think about tamoxifen. Um, tamoxifen, as we know, is an anti-estrogen, right? used to make sure breast cancer cells don't proliferate. Yeah. That's at high doses. At low doses, it's an estrogen. It stimulates proliferation. And physicians know they have to structure their prescriptions, their treatment of women with breast cancer and t- with tamoxifen in a way that leaps, gets them through that low-dose phase very rapidly. <clears throat> so it's, you know, it, it's, it's very unfortunate that... Um, uh, Old school toxicology is not a blind eye to this. It's vitally important. May I just add that our next conversation of this kind is with Heather Logan of the Canadian Cancer Society on Wednesday, May 16. And the Canadian Cancer Society has adopted the most comprehensive policy position on cancer in the environment of any national cancer society we're aware of. So I hope uh, you will spread the word among your colleagues in Canada uh, because we are eager to uh, extend our dialogue, uh, particularly given what Pete said about um, uh, the, the quality of the effort being made in Canada. We really look forward to extending our dialogue with Canadian partners. Do, yeah. yeah. Mike, Other questions and comments? Michael, may I ask Pete a question? Yes, Theo. Theo, he got started. He said, you asked him in the very beginning on what principle he works and what were the major things that that he thought he would work on, and he got to prevention, and he never got beyond that. Pete, <laughs> did you have more to tell us? Um, this is Theo Colburn, uh, co-author of Our Stolen Future. With remind you. me what the question was. That was an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did get up at 3 a.m., and, and on a day when I can't remember something as the definition, simple as the definition of genomics, you know, you know, some of my neurons aren't firing correctly. Well, well, Michael, my neurons aren't working either. How, how did you specifically ask the question? It beats me, Theo. Oh. <laughs> well, all right, then apparently Pete, does, it doesn't matter, but he started out with, well, you know, he felt that the first thing that was moving him and keeping him doing what he's doing yeah. was because there were opportunities to prevent so much. Yeah, that's right. That was the. And he never got beyond that. Never got beyond it. Well, we'll have to do another call that goes beyond prevention. Yeah. Other comments? Sleep the night before. Uh, yes. I'm Dr. Roy Ozan, and 
Uh, my question and comment relates to when you talk about all the opportunities, and that's what excites you. Um, one, I congratulate you and Theo and all of the people because we have to move towards a green chemistry, and I think green manufacturing in general. But an opportunity that I wonder whether Che addresses it or whether it's appropriate is that what I have seen is that really good quality food, and this relates to one comment of yours, Pete, was that a con contribution to obesity is excess calories, but that's not true. I have, in my work, fed people, obese people, high calories, but of healthy food, they lose weight. And we are missing an opportunity in that high-level nutrition of non-industrialized foods, really healthy foods, does so many things. It protects us from chemicals. It improves our health. It improves our CO2 um, concentrations in the atmosphere. Pasture-based farming is one of the fastest ways to sequester CO2, and it reduces an enormous amount of farm chemicals. So I wonder if we should be looking, when we're looking for opportunities, in addition to making us aware of the problem of chemicals, to make us aware of the advantages of really going quickly towards high-quality, non-industrial foods in pasture-based farming. Thank you. What-based farming? Pasture-based. Pasture-based, oh, pasture. getting back yeah. all of our corn and soybean mm -hmm. fields, which are used to industri make industrial mm -hmm. products, is contributing enormously to greenhouse gases and right. widespread distribution of chemicals, and we don't need it. Well, um, better nutrition clearly is also part of the answer. You may have seen a paper that came out um, in the International Journal of Obesity uh, this past summer. Um, I forget forgetting the names of the authors, and there were 15 of them anyway. Um, but th they did a review of... Um, the literature investigating the causes of obesity, um, the obesity epidemic, um, and, and that you need to distinguish between the causes of a case of obesity and the causes of the obesity epidemic. Um, what they concluded about the epidemic is that while most of the focus has been on what they called the big two, excess calories and uh, the couch potato syndrome, too little exercise, that if you look if you look hard at the data very critically, while it makes a great deal of common sense to think that that's it. In fact, the evidence, the, the published evidence, demonstrating the links between the big two and the obesity epidemic is all circumstantial. They right. then There's reviewed. No, there. They then reviewed eight other potential causes, um, including endocrine disruption, and then some other things. And they concluded that um, the evidence for the eight others was circumstantial, but for several of them, it was the, the links were plausible. Um, I don't think that they addressed uh, nutritional quality directly in the way that you're talking about it now. But it's very interesting. It clearly better nutrition has to be part of the solution. Other uh, questions or comments, please. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Phil Shabikov. Hi, Phil. Uh, hi, Peter. First of all, um, I, I've got to say that um, uh, you were both a fool to did half the work for me in running our. <laughs> our 
Phil, could you speak up a little bit? I can yeah. barely hear you. Yes, I was saying, Pete, that thank you for your above the fold. It's done half the work in uh, in our book on children and the environment. Great. I'm always happy to have with you. Um, I just want to. We haven't talked at all about the need for uh, economic and political change to deal with these issues of toxics in the environment. <clears throat> I wonder if you have anything to say about that. Um, well, I, I would say that the climate for uh, uh, politic for the climate in Washington for implementing better protective standards has changed quite dramatically over the last six months. In fact, changed in November. And we're finding much more, seeing much more responsivity, responsiveness um, to suggestions about what sort of steps uh, that we ought to take. And I, you know, I, I'm, 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 but in the past we've had folks from both parties um, blocking uh, protective measures. Um, I think that um, for whatever reason right now, because of the leadership in the Senate and the House, both of whom take some of these issues very seriously, uh, we're likely to see some uh, significant steps taken. Now, whether anything then makes it through the White House in the next two years is another question. Um, so... Uh, I guess that addresses the question of politically whether or not something has happened. Um, I, I do think that we need to see... Um, I think we will benefit on these issues if this perception that I talked about today, and it's my perception, I hope other people share it, that um, we do have... We, we are standing on the edge of being able to accomplish some major improvements through health, um, in, in health through, by taking preventative steps. I think that if we can help a larger number of people understand that and we can start putting politicians um, uh, on the record about what they propose to do on these things, I, I, I think it has the potential, just like climate change now has moved into the political world, become an issue on which people are making voting decisions. I think this, properly framed with more work, has the potential of becoming something that might um, become a voting issue for some people. And, and if that happens, I think we win. Other questions, please. Um, this is Lynn Cannon. And I totally agree that uh, with Pete Myers. However, it seems to me that people in this country are very complacent about what they have, and they're not willing to put themselves out on a limb to do this. And I want to know: we've gotten through a, with the um, with the uh, climate problems uh, substantially through with those, but I think people are are uh, it's difficult to get people to rise to things that they think, well, they're all right. They don't take science very seriously in this country. <clears throat> and I just wonder whether you have any comments on how we can change that attitude. Uh, we could get in, in, um, uh, 10 million people subscribing to Above the Fold. <laughs> that would be a good start. Good. Um, uh, and I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm on your list. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. I, you know, I, I don't have any really novel ideas on this mm-hmm. front. I, I do think we need to make better use, fuller use, larger use of the communication tools that are within our reach. Use them smarter, more intelligently, and um, put these put this information in front of people in ways that uh, help them see the opportunities that are in front of them. I think Che has been really interesting uh, and and potentially extraordinarily valuable by engaging, as Michael knows, with a with the representatives of organizations around the country whose focus focus it is to provide. Um, support for people or families affected by uh, one or more health problems like prostate cancer, breast cancer, learning disabilities, etc. And then, to, and then, as Che is trying to do, engage with that leadership and the membership uh, about what, what is the science, what does it say, what does it mean, what does it think you should do. And I, 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 it, what's most... I, interesting to me about this process is Che isn't telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. He's engaging them in a discussion about what do you think, based on what you've just learned. Um, We're seeing Che grow uh, in an exponential phase of growth. Michael, how many members are there now? Only 2,800 partners in 48 states and 40 countries. We just did a uh, call uh, with... uh, a whole set of partners in Israel today with uh, Gene Rizzo and Ted Shetler. So, and of course, we have this uh, strong network in Europe, and uh, we, and uh, Canada is clearly a, a growth area. So, uh, there's a broad sense that the international partnership is growing. You know, I, I think that um, as well, I'm an optimist on this front. Um, the, the growth of Che is an illustration of how hungry people are for this information. And um, that the conversations we enter into with them open up opportunities for them to participate with other Che partners um, in taking steps towards prevention. And, I, you know, we haven't even begun to see how powerful this could be. Just one example. Um, we organized, uh, Ali Carlson, Linda Judis, organized the um, CHE report on infertility and contamination. Um, began with a small workshop, ultimately led to uh, production of several documents, a uh, lay document, a scientific consensus statement, et cetera. And we, it, part of that process involved uh, hear, hearings uh, in Washington. Um, which were extraordinary, not because of, I mean I knew the science and, and, and the science is really interesting, but to me, what was remarkable was the political breadth of people participating in the process. We lit, on the panels, uh, we literally had we had um, very classically San Francisco wonderful liberals, and we also had a couple from rural Indiana in the late twenties. Certain they were Republican. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure they were pro-life, and they were up there talking about in front of you know 100 Senate staffers. They were talking about their infertility, his low sperm count, her mm-hmm. poor egg quality, um, and the contribution. What they thought was 
what's the cause? So it was a very interesting um, uh, political statement to be there with people from such different political backgrounds all sharing a common agenda. And some of you will have seen above the fold last week um, a report on um, a meeting uh, that um, was held by the, at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, written up in Catholic Today, uh, with um, some really interesting uh, scientific and political discussions by people who, again, across a wide range of, of uh, political uh, perspectives, including the luncheon speaker who, who was for at least three years the head of the Catholic Church's uh, pro-life advocacy effort, basically saying what's most interesting about this gathering is that it's bringing together people who rarely would be able to sit down in the same room together, and yet realizing there is at least one portion of the, the agendas of these groups that they hold in common, and that's an act of bringing a political, uh, unexpected um, fellows together in a political process, and it has, can have great power. Well, With the last five minutes, any other questions and comments? Hi, this is Sandy Ross, and I couldn't help but think, as you were listing the diseases, the conditions um, that Shay looks at, that Martin Paul uh, from Pullman in Washington has come up with a theory that um, elevated levels of nitric oxide in its oxidant product, peroxynitrite, um, are very much involved in these, and he thinks that the causes are short-term stressors like viral, bacterial, physical trauma, um, solvent exposure, pesticides, etc. But I'm just wondering whether maybe that's just a piece of it and that maybe the, the real um, hurt, the real damage comes, as you've often pointed out, um, to the fetus. Pete, any comments on that? Well, um, let me... Uh, it does bring to mind something I, I wanted to mention. Um, that, uh, and this is, we're starting to see a number of scientific studies that uh, show quite clearly. Not starting to have in the last uh, ten years, at least. But it's it's the fact that um, that by affecting the immune system, um, we're seeing contaminants decrease. In some cases, one of the effects can be to decrease resistance to infectious agents. Um, and yet traditional epidemiology, uh, traditional calculations of disease burden, assign those deaths, if, they, if it winds up with death, assign them to the infectious agent. But some of these, we've seen a number of studies, both with animals and with people, showing that, or indicating that it's the, the immune system suppression through exposure, um, by winds up making the uh, making the person vulnerable to the disease agent. So, so even though the the um, the cause of death is attributed to the disease agent, it's something that wouldn't have happened without the exposure. And my bet is that as we learn more about that, and there's a lot of work underway in immune system toxicology now that's helping to understand this better. Uh, as we learn more about that, we're going to realize that we have vastly underestimated uh, the, the 
disease burden caused by contamination because we confound it with what with, with the disease agent. Was that clear? Yes, it was. It relates very much to the whole concept of resilience that is uh, <clears throat> developing in many arenas of work and environmental health. That reduced resilience mm-hmm. increases uh, increases our vulnerability to exactly. many, many different factors. Pete Myers, I want to thank you for really a wonderful 90 minutes in this new format. It's a great privilege to hear you at length thinking about the issues that you think about, and uh, to all of those on the call, thanks for being on, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael.